though by all accounts there are some problems in the world. And each of us can list them. Or if our imagination is lacking, we can just turn on any news media and we'll get a graphic depiction. Just think about all the problems in the world. Think of the problems that you particularly take note of. From one vantage point, the world is a mess. All those problems. Cascading, building on one another, intertwined. And we have some, in some people's fantasy, some hope that someone will rescue us, the right medicine, the right vaccine, the right government, the right whatever. But the world is trillions of dollars in global debt, and that could crash in a second. One trillion dollars, by the way, Actually, $1.8 trillion, or see, $1.8 trillion is a stack of one cent, you know, little semi-copper pennies that we use, enough copper pennies to fill the entire Empire State Building. And as you probably know, back in the 40s, the Empire State Building was the tallest building in the world. So 1.8 trillion is equivalent to copper pennies enough to fill the Empire State Building. And our country, the world, is hundreds of trillions of dollars in debt. It could all crash in a second. So the world has got its particular challenges, all of which we are very well aware of. And probably there are more challenges that we're not aware of. And paired with that, we have the bodhisattva vow. Paired with that, we have a vow to save everyone, to liberate everyone, to free everyone. So we've got a little conundrum Trillions of dollars of debt and the vow to save everyone. All those media depicted problems and the vow to free, liberate everyone. That's a real, <clears throat> a real koan, a real point of inquiry, a real conundrum. Here's another conundrum. As soon as we identify that we have something, then others don't. So if we have a pencil, then as soon as I have this pencil, everybody else doesn't have this pencil. And as soon as all those who happen to have the good fortune to have pencils, all those who don't have the good fortune to have pencils are created. 
and haves and have-nots are born. As soon as we notice how tall we are, automatically there are shorter people. As soon as we look up, automatically down exists. As soon as we define ourselves as in or out, automatically the opposite is created. As soon as we recognize justice, injustice comes simultaneously. If we are confused, that confusion is only relative to clarity. They all arise together, both sides. The haves and the have-nots, the clear and the confused, the trillion of dollars of global debt and the vow to save all beings arise together. Now, there is a saying in uh, Zen Buddhism that in the beginning of practice, mountains are mountains. In the middle of practice, no mountains. In the end of practice, mountains are mountains. In the first stage of practice, the world is a mess. But as we look carefully at what things are composed of, as we look carefully and we see the intertwining of all things, the interconnection of all things, the interbeing of all things, as we look closely and we begin to see between the, each thing that a thing is composed of, there is space. And as we look closely at the particular challenges of the world and we see, oh, they're intertwined, there's space in them, they arise from the same source, they're unpendownable, they're just a particular wave of flow, then the mess of the world is no longer the mess of the world. Mountains are no longer mountains. We see with a different eye. We have a different understanding. We see Bright, bright, spacious, clear, unfolding of nature, unfolding by itself. And we see that bright, spacious nature unfolding as the world itself. So one aspect of practice is to practice with the way things are, the way we are, to look deeply into the way things are, to look deeply into the way we are, to see <clears throat> the bright, spacious okayness at the core. But then out of that okayness comes the world as a mess. Out of that spacious mind comes this exact same world. So mountains are mountains in the beginning, the world is the world in the beginning, in the middle there is no world and there is no mountains. In the end, mountains are mountains and the world is world and it's not the same mountain and not the same world, even though it looks the same. In the beginning it's 
my world, my mountain, my body, my, 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 my. In the middle, we begin to see that the, the one that we had referred our, all this to, the my, the I, is really spacious. In the end, without the my, things are as they are. And there's something that we want to do. Something out of connection, out of friendliness, out of kindness, out of love that we want to do. In the beginning, it's all about me. I want to be safe. I want to be taken care of. I want to be known. I want to be recognized. I want to have pleasure. In the middle, we see that that isn't so important. Every pleasure disappears. Every bit of safety disappears. And then the world is unfolding all at once. Up and down, in and out, good and bad. It's all part of the matrix of reality. The world belongs to nature itself. We're part of that nature. And in that nature, there are things we want to do. All of us, from the minute we wake up in the morning, we decide, am I going to urinate in the bed or am I going to go into the bathroom? We make decisions just like that constantly. They're so brief and so rapid that we don't even notice them. We're making decisions all the time out of the spacious mind. With the world as it is, we're making decisions. We're making choices. Coffee, tea, clothing, no clothing, shoes, no shoes, in, out, up, down. In the beginning, mountains are mountains. Everything is concrete and solid. In the beginning, I am a thing, and I'm going to get this thing better, and I'm going to become solid and, and mature. Great. Grounded. Great. But in the end, it's all flow, as Chosen was saying yesterday. It's all flow. It's not a thing anymore. The world is not fixed blocks. It's all flow. all evolution, all flux. Same world. In one world, we go to war because there's lots of opposing us. In another, war, in another world, we bring peace because we recognize the flow. and We add our part to the flow. We make the choices that are in harmony with our vows. This is an experience. It's important that we sit down, that we are doing zazen, that we are actually looking here. We sit down with our lumpish selves and we stabilize the mind. We anchor in the earth. We feel the body breathing us. Good. 
the first part of practice is become calm, become stable, become make the mind manageable. The second is to look into that stability, to look into that calm abiding, to look into that peace, to look into whatever clarity we have and to see its nature and the nature of all things. And then from a recognition of the nature of things, we respond, we offer, we give, we sit down in session, we stabilize the mind, we begin to look into that stable mind, we see its nature, and we watch the natural effulgence of that mind, breath by breath. Because we've decided to do this in a session format, we've, like a science experiment, we've, we've set certain limits, we've, we've set certain parameters, and say, okay, we're going to look at this in, within these parameters so that we can see more clearly what's inside there. We limit the news, we limit the outgoing, we limit the buying, we limit the whatever we do. We limit it so that we can look and see the nature of reality. So that we can watch it unfold and then make our decisions, do our part in that unfolding. And it may be that the difference is that we are start off with a small perspective. I, me, and my. I want to get better. But gradually as we look and we see the space around us and we see the space within us, our perspective shifts and becomes larger, wider, more inclusive. Now the nature of our minds, we're sitting here in this room or at home, wherever, and the mind naturally makes conclusions. It's just the way the, that's what the mind does. If you've got a discriminating mind, it makes conclusions. That's how it thinks. The separating this from that, big and small, large and in and out, no and not no. So the first stage, we just watch the mind making its conclusions. I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, I'm, my legs hurt, my legs don't hurt, I'm making progress, I'm not making progress. And then, as we notice ourselves congealing on different opinions about our self, our practice, our world, we just ask, well, what else? What else is true? Okay, my mind is not very stable and I'm, you know, I'm restless and, well, what else is true? Okay, the world is really a a mess. What else is true? What else is true? My mind is scattered. My practice is inadequate. What else is true? I am perfectly calm. I'm perfectly at ease. What else is true? There is, in this world, as we all know, racism and poverty and 
there is sickness and there are terrible disasters. What else is true? What else is true? We often say in, in session or in retreat, don't draw conclusions. But the mind draws conclusions anyhow. We've all probably said, okay, I'm not going to judge, I'm not going to evaluate, I'm going to just let things be as they are, I'm going to let the flow happen, and it doesn't. You know, we're just busy judging, judging, judging all the time. It's the way the mind works. You've got thoughts, you're making evaluations between this word and that word, between this label and that label, between what you've identified, what the, the perceptual mind has, has put together as a cushion, as a floor, as a, a room. It's the way it goes. What else is true? What else is true? So whenever we find ourselves feeling stuck, feeling hopeless, feeling depressed, feeling anything, what else is true? What else is true? What is the inclusive mind? What else? So we see low, but high is also true. In and out is also true. It's all part of the one matrix. The inclusive mind is inclusive. What else is true? People talk about all kinds of states and insights and try to motivate people to want to practice. But it doesn't just happen by itself. Maybe it does. Here's what the text says, the Gyoji, continuous practice. Huiko, the second ancestor in China, was admired. He was a teacher of high virtue, a broad-minded person, respected equally by monks and lay people. One day a spirit appeared in his dream and said to Huiko, this is not a place to stay if you want to harvest the fruit, if you want to become awakened, if you want to see the truth. The great road is not far away. You should go south. The next day he had a piercing headache and asked his teacher to help him relieve it. And then a voice from the sky was heard, this is not a usual headache. Your very bones are being replaced. So we start off practice thinking that we are a particular kind of mountain, a particular kind of lump, thinking that we know our nature. Yes, my body has such and such a shape, and I have these attributes, and I have these qualities, and I can do this, and I can't do that, and we've got all, it, all of it down. And then we encounter something, a challenge, an obstacle, a pain. And of course, you know, if you're all like me, and probably you are, our first impulse is to get away from it, cure it, heal it, make it go away, find comfort again. But the very obstacles that we have are changing, are replacing 
the bones of the structure of who we think we are. The bones are melting, morphing. If we were all quite content and happy and whatever that means to you, <clears throat> and just be bopping along, then we'd be quite content and happy and be bopping along with exactly the way things are. And we might have a mind that's the size of a pea and have the manners of a goat, but we'd be very happy. You know? It's only when we encounter particular challenges, when things grate on us, that really begin to, to change and really begin to call to something deeper, something more genuine, something larger. The Mulakirti Sutra says the only reason we practice is because of obstacles, because of samsara, because of dukkha. And they say in the six realms of existence, the six realms, the heavenly realm and the kind of fighting Ashura realm and the human realm and the animal realm and the realm of hungry ghosts and the hellish realms. One of the hardest realms to actually practice in is the heavenly realm. Because if there's nothing wrong, we don't really look at ourselves. We have evidence of that in some ways. Examples in the media. But when we come up against something, when the mountain is challenged, so a piercing headache. And of course, our version of the piercing headache is my back hurts, my knee hurts, my this hurts, my that hurts. You know, I've got this particular worry, I have this anxiety, I have this throbbing, what's it? And the throbbing, what's it, is also part of the call. Continuing, Huiko told his teacher about his dream. The teacher said, you have an auspicious appearance, which shows that you are destined to have realization. The Spirit's message for you to go south must mean that Bodhidharma, the great practitioner of the Shaolin Temple, is your teacher. The Spirit who had spoken to Hui Ko was the guardian deity for his endless practice of the way. The endless practice of the way. The endless practice of having our bones replaced, adjusted. The endless practice of having our skin sloughed off, 50 million cells of your epidermis flakes off every hour, every day, I can't remember. 50 million cells just of your epidermis. It's all being replaced. Blood cells are dying constantly. This, too, is the endless practice of the way. Our very looking, our aspiration for clarity, for peace, our aspiration to save all beings in this world, our aspiration <clears throat> to be of benefit 
to be kind, to help things become more organized and less painful, that aspiration is the continuing practice of the way. Sitting here, sitting there, sitting anywhere, hour after hour, with this intention, is the continuous practice of the way. It's not the continuous practice of the way as a particular state. The continuous practice of the way, oh, if I have flowers blooming out of my head, then the flowers are a sign that I have the continuous practice of the, of the Buddhas. Or suddenly I've sprouted horns or whatever. It is the very fact that we are sitting with intention. Now. 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 Following his teacher's instructions, Huiko went to see Bodhidharma at Shaolin Peak. It was a severely cold winter night, said to be the ninth day of the twelfth month. Even without heavy rain or snow, on such a winter night in the deep mountains, it would be impossible for a person to stand outdoors, to do the impossible. It was a horrendous season when bamboo was so cold it cracked. A great snow covered the entire mountain. Huiko searched in the snow for a trail. Who knows the extent of his hardship? Nobody knows the extent of our challenges. We've all got them. Nobody knows. Just like nobody knows the taste in my mouth. Nobody knows what it feels like in my back, my legs. Nobody knows our particular challenges. Nobody knows the hardships that we may or may not go through. How do we do that? How do we face the difficulties and the challenges of our life? This is about we co, it's not about somebody else. How do we do what seems impossible? How do we face those nagging, weighty problems that we've been beset with over and over again? How does we co, in this metaphor, do the impossible? Good and bad, easy, hard, possible, impossible, succeeding, failing, right, wrong, alive, dead. Impossible, possible. When we are fixated on one side of the equation, our being is small, frail. When we see the whole picture, especially when we know the whole picture without the mind's conclusions about our weakness or the impossibility of things, we know that, and we are just continuing to go forward with intention, with faith, without the conclusion of this is impossible. 
We're continuing to take the next step and take the next step and take the next step. One moment of cold, another moment of cold, another moment of cold. And nobody says it doesn't hurt. But when we see it all as flow, all as flow, versus this is the way things are, there's some possibility. I went to uh, Japan the first time to go to Sashin at uh, Soginji. And it was a few days after the Kobe earthquake, whenever that was. And I arrived at the airport and found that all the public transportation system has, was disrupted. Things weren't, I didn't speak a word of Japanese, didn't know anybody, nobody greeted me. So I had to just figure out one step at a time. Well, okay, well, now what? All right, I can take a bus. And then there's a ferry. And there's a local bus. There's a short train. There's a long train. There's another bus. And you just do one step at a time, one step at a time, one step at a time, one step at a time. And ended up at Okuyama, the middle of the night. Well, it's the next step. You got a place to stay. The next step. The next step. When we're in a situation where we just have to keep going forward, we can't think of possible or impossible. We just keep going forward. We just keep making the best choice that we can make, the best step. We're all in that situation. We're all on this trail. You only imagine that we're resting. I got to Sogenji the next Morning, it's February, it was magical, it was mysterious, there was snow falling, and it was the coldest, miserable two weeks, three weeks, I can remember. The next step, though, the next step, the next step, the next step. Breathe this breath. The next step. And then it flows, flows through. The dream. Everything is flowing through. Everything is a dream. Finally, Wiko reached Bodhidharma's dwelling but was not allowed to enter. Bodhidharma did not turn around. Now that's interesting. Here he goes to see this teacher who got the first Bodhisattva vow beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Bodhidharma is sitting there, beings are numberless, have out of freedom, and here this guy comes along. Bodhidharma ignores him. Doesn't give him any teachings. Doesn't help him in any way. Fundamentally, the only person who can actually see the nature of our own mind is us. And there can be all kinds of structures, hopefully, that are not obscuring things, but hopefully they're structures that enable us to, to look directly. We have advice and we have <clears throat> timekeepers and we have 
But nobody else can look at the nature of our mind. Nobody else can say, ah, right there. Ah, right here. Ah, that's... We come face to face with ourselves. Face to face. Sitting right here, this room, whatever room you're in, sitting right here, we are face to face with ourselves. And there's no easy answers that come from the outside. We can't read it in a book. It's not in a Dharma talk. Wiko comes to Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma doesn't give him anything. And he sits, stands, and waits, and looks, and waits, and waits, and looks, and looks, and waits, and waits, and looks. And that looking is not necessarily just easy sitting around. That looking of really being on the, on the edge. What is it that's alive? What is it that's alive? What is it that's suffering? What is it that, that feels the pain of the world? Who am I? What am I? Throughout the night, Huiko did not sleep, sit or rest. He looked, stood firmly until dawn. The night snow seemed to have no mercy, piling higher and burying up to his waist. Every drop of his tears froze. Seeing, he, seeing his frozen, seeing his own frozen tears, he shed even more tears. Looking at his own body, he thought of the old ancestors. There is nobody who has experiences that somebody else has not also faced. There is no pain that somebody else has not also experienced in their body. There is no oppression. There is no obstacle. There is no (coughs) situation that someone else has not also had to face. So Huiko, standing there in his particular dire exigency, reflects I'm not alone in this. Other people have stood in this place. Other people have faced the particular challenge I have. Other people have the vow to be save all beings. And yet the world is a mess. Other people, this is not hopeless. This is not impossible. Other people have stood right where I stand and can look right where I'm looking. And he continues. They were like that. And who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who is the one who has the aspiration to help all beings, who feels her own distress? Those who study nowadays should not forget Wiko's words, the words, they were like that, then who am I? Who am I? This is a quintessential koan. 
<clears throat> when we all 24-7 just about think about ourselves, think about ourselves, like how do I be more comfortable and how do I be more wise and how do I get more loving kindness and how do people appreciate me more and how can, you know, what is it that's at the core? Who am I? What am I? What is it that feels? What is it that knows? What is it that breathes and thinks? It says, if we forget, we will drown for numberless kalpas. Thus, Huiko addressed himself in this way, strengthening his aspiration for the Dharma. When we imagine the hair-raising ordeal of that long night, we are struck with awe. At dawn, Bodhidharma took notice. What do you seek? Why have you stood in the snow so long? Why are you practicing? What's kept you going for weeks or months or years or decades? And Wiko says, please help me. <clears throat> please help me. The text says, all I wish is that you compassionately open the gate of sweet dew in order to awaken many beings. It's interesting. In order to awaken many beings, not just me. Bodhidharma said, the unsurpassed, inconceivable way of the Buddhas must be practiced hard and constantly for vast kalpas. You must bear what is unbearable. But if you wish with small virtue, small wisdom, and casual, arrogant mind for the true vehicle, you will toil in vain. He's talking to all of us, of course. And we can say small virtue, small wisdom, casual, arrogant mind, causal, casual, arrogant mind. So we could say that is simply you know, our laziness and arrogance. We could say that that is just a small view of who we are, that we only see the small side of ourselves when we don't see the inclusive side, we don't see what else, we don't see what else. Oh yes, there is a small, arrogant, scared, child-like part that is frozen in terror. Yes, and what else? And what else? And what else? Buddha-dharma said, when Buddhas first seek the way, they give up the body form for the sake of the dharma. That is, they give up their fixated idea on their small, little, tight thing on seeing mountains only as mountains and the world is a mess only as the world is a mess. I see your determination and you're invited to pursue the way here. Now in the koan, there's a koan that's like this which deals with this matter a little differently. And in the koan, Bodhidharma says to Huiko, well, bring your mind, bring that suffering mind, bring this part that's in so much pain, bring the, the part of you that is so troubled, bring it forward, let me see it. Show me it, show me your mind. And then Huiko says, I have looked endlessly. I have looked everywhere. I have looked deeply. I have looked, I have investigated, I have thought, I have read, I have pondered, I have stood in the snow. 
I can't find anything. I can't find it. It's unfindable. Bodhidharma says, there, it's pacified. There, it's free. With that understanding, it's free. Hard path, easy path, short path, long path, timely, timeless, all that is important is with intention to know what is most intimate. We take the next step and take the next step and look carefully. And whenever we get stuck or get frozen, what else is true? What else is true? What else is true? Here's something from Anthony DeMello. Hindu India developed a magnificent image to describe true nature, our relationship with the true nature. He uses the word God. To describe God's relationship with creation, true nature in us. God dances creation. He is the dancer. Creation is his dance. The dance is different from the dancer and yet it has no existence apart from the dancer. You can't take it home in a box. It pleases you. The moment the dancer stops, the dance ceases to be. We are that dancer that creates the whole world. We are that dancer that is the manifestation of true nature. Our little life in all of its fluidity is nothing but the dance of the universe. In our quest for God, Anthony DeMello says, we think too much, we reflect too much, we talk too much. Even we look at this dance that we call creation, we're the whole time thinking and talking to ourselves and to others, analyzing, philosophizing, lots of words, lots of noise. He says, be silent. Contemplate the dance, the flow of breath. Contemplate the dance. Just look. A star, a flower, a fading leaf, a bird, a stone. Any fragment of the dance will do. Look, listen, smell, touch, taste. And it won't be long before you see the dancer himself. Hot dance, slow dance, long dance, sweet dance, painful dance, pleasant dance, continuous dance, the dance of our life, flowing, flowing, flowing. What else is true?